Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Yeah. Welcome to episode two of four of the Expert Insights on ITP, How Do Emerging Treatment Options Have the Potential to Transform Patient Outcomes podcast series. I'm Dr. Cindy Nunert, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. James Bussell. Jim is an Emirate Professor of Pediatrics of Medicine and Obstetrics and Gynecology at Will Cornell Medical Center in New York City. His clinical and clinical research interests have been largely in immune thrombocytopenia, or ITP, and he has published over 500 manuscripts predominantly in this area. This year, he is receiving the Stratton Award from the American Society of Hematology for his work in ITP and other immune thrombocytopenias. This second podcast will discuss how and why clinicians must make decisions on the basis of the clinical presentation of each individual patient through a shared decision-making process that considers the patient's values and preferences with respect to the anticipated outcomes they have chosen. I would recommend that you download the accompanying slides to follow our discussion in this podcast. So next we'll have Dr. Jim Bussell uh, coming back to talk to us more about this concept of shared decision-making in ITP. Dr. Bussell? Thanks, Cindy. I really enjoyed listening to you go over the treatment options and how they fit the pathophysiology. And this is about how you use that information and interact with the patient to have it all work out. And I like this slide, maybe especially because it's a little bit aggressive. So I'm sure that you're all familiar with this to a greater or lesser extent. But I think the key point of this slide is that it's a two-way street. The patient has to share the information with you and then you can share your, let's call it, medical information with them, but then you try to make the decision together. And I know for me that one of the things that would always strike me, I would see a patient and we would talk, and sometimes at the end I would say, well, let's do X, and the patient would look at the floor. And I knew that somehow I had missed it big time, and when I asked, often there was additional history that had not been provided that would have said, oh, you know, that sounds good, but that's not the right way to do it. So there's a lot of factors to consider. Obviously, extent and type of bleeding. Also, what are the comorbidities predisposing to bleeding or to adverse response to treatments? And those might be more common in the elderly, but certainly could occur in anybody. The efficacy and complications of specific therapies, activities and lifestyle. Do you have somebody whose life was geared to sports or was a professional athlete? Or if they worked in construction, you would probably choose a higher threshold. Tolerance of side effects is important. And then accessibility of care including not only the co-pays, but how much time would be required away from work to receive a given treatment? And then what are the patient expectations, worry, or anxiety? 
and those can sometimes be based on their family's experience or those of friends. And finally, are they on other medications that are going to create a bleeding or thrombotic risk, so on? Treatments, as I think you know, would either be short-term, like we need to get the count up now. Generally, we're pretty good at that, even if you need to use several. Long-term is trickier because mostly, but not entirely, you need to give ongoing treatment. So it sort of depends on what you're looking for and what to consider. What makes this so tricky, and which one reason why shared decision-making is so important, is there are no slam dunks. There are no treatment comparisons of second-line agents, so you can be very specific about, oh, this one's better for bleeding, that one has a better long-term outcome, etc. And because of that, there are not situations where specific treatments are established although there's some areas where there are tendencies. But even in those areas, you'd want to talk with the patient and see what they think. And I believe you all know that in addition to bleeding, and I think Cindy alluded to this, fatigue and other things like that, including depression, that limit daily activity can be very important. And sometimes patients are told, oh, you know, this has nothing to do with your ITP, that actually seems to be wrong. And quality of life is often as severe or as impaired as it is with things like arthritis and diabetes. Now, some of the quality of life issues could be fear of bleeding. Like you may not want to be at a party and suddenly have a nosebleed that you can't stop for five minutes and have everybody look at you and wonder what's going on. Similarly, if you can't play sports, though that's overdone, I think, um, that's another issue. You may not be able to take certain medications. So, for example, if you go to the dentist, you may not be able to use NSAID the way you'd like to help with the pain afterward. There's economic impact, no question, about missing work for treatment. Treatments, I think everybody knows, has side effects. And then there's especially depression and fatigue. And what's remarkable is we've known about quality of life for a while. It's multifactorial, but exactly what's going on remains elusive. So many patients and physicians focus on addressing low platelet counts but you can't ignore their quality of life and their experience with their ITP. And fatigue can often be the most debilitating part of their ITP, and it's often but certainly far from always correlated with the platelet count. And in addition, when you're treating the platelet count, that doesn't always fix the fatigue. And On the flip side, when the platelet count is okay, but fatigue is very bad, it may be worthwhile to consider treatment of the patient, and we'll come to this in another slide, to consider what to do. Now, what else would you do? Well, one other thing. If you say to most patients, you know, how are you doing, there's a big tendency for them to say fine, but especially 
if they not only are not feeling well, but they think of that as their normal state, they may not tell you about it. And because they don't recognize if they've had ITP for a long time, how bad the effect is. It could be similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, which is also multifactorial, poorly understood, and lacking optimal management strategies. It's important to investigate organic causes in the beginning. And I put up some examples, and we'll come back to that in one of the cases. But it's also probably want to try increasing the platelet count, seeing if you can use anti-inflammatory agents. And I think it's important to consider antidepressants depending on what the dominant effect is. Just because we're not great about it doesn't mean it should be ignored. And if necessary, you may need to help your patient with trial and error to see what will work for them. And this, again, emphasizes shared decision-making, and particularly in a dynamic way to help the patient understand what can they do to make themselves better. There's some data about this that you can see on this slide. And on the one hand, most of the time when people look at these slides, they say, oh, quote, it's the doctor's fault. I think that may well often be true. I do think, though, that the flip side can happen. It's important to get the patient to share their side of the experience in order to let the doctor know what's going on. Either way, clear and unbiased communications are very important. And if a patient gets to express their feelings and opinions and then discusses with the clinician what seems to be best, they're three to five times more likely to be satisfied with them and to comply with whatever program they've agreed on. So shared decision-making helps the patient understand about ITP, the pros and cons of different treatments, recognize that a decision really made, have information and tools to evaluate treatments, be better prepared to talk with the healthcare provider, collaborate with the healthcare team, as we said, comply with the outcome. I like the uh, share thing, seek your patient's participation, help them explore and compare, assess values and preferences, reach a decision, and evaluate your patient's decision. And all I can say is if you ask them enough questions, you'll be amazed at all the answers you get. We've discussed a lot of the key elements, and this is almost generic for any shared decision-making. And there's a lot of tools out there that you can direct them to. And in ITP, I think the PDSA, Platelet Disorder Support Association, website is really very, very good and very, very helpful. And they have a helpline and support groups. Teachback's very important. I mean, certainly we've all learned, you know, you can be paying no attention to something and say it back, but getting the patient to repeat it back to you in a meaningful way is very good. And Cindy covered a lot of that before. So what I would just want to focus on is there's a wide range of choices, and you need to work with the patient to find out 
What do they need? What do they desire? And what will they put up with relative to choosing the best option? And it's on us that we don't have more biomarkers, comparative trial, and curative options. And all of these uncertainties together are what drives shared decision-making. Thank you for listening to this episode of Expert Insights in ITP, How Do Emerging Treatment Options Have the Potential to Transform Patient Outcomes? If you enjoyed this podcast, then please join us for a dynamic and interactive case presentation in Episode 3. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.